You're the bane of my existence and the object of all my desires. Bridgerton Season 2 understands a fundamental truth of romance stories. There's nothing more exciting than watching animosity I hate you turn to amore. The enemies to lovers trope, where a story's endgame couple starts out despising each other, is packed with delicious tension, sexual and otherwise. In Bridgerton Season 2, Antony Bridgerton and Kate Sharma are star-crossed lovers, but rather than being thwarted by external forces, it's their internal hostility to one another that gets in the way of their obvious desire. You vex me! And what is it do you think you do to me? In the enemies to lovers trope, the couple's initial hatred is often founded on a miscommunication or misconception, or someone being too guarded with their true feelings. In the quintessential example and major Bridgerton influence Pride and Prejudice, it's right there in the title. Darcy's pride and Lizzie Bennet's prejudice against him represent internal obstacles the couple must overcome. She was too proud. Oh, I, I thought you hated Pride and Prejudice. Or was she too... Prejudice. But the enemies to lovers' early clashes reveal just how compatible they are, as they spar their chemistry ignites, and we get to see what a great match they make through how great they are at arguing. Are the young ladies of London truly so easily won? by a pleasing smile and absolutely nothing more. So you find my smile pleasing. Then, as the enemies to lovers begin to get to know each other better and realize their feelings, the tension shifts. The internal obstacles dissipate, but by this point they face more concrete external obstacles, which the couple themselves may have created in their initial delusion. So the payoff for both the audience and the characters is watching the couple working through so much in order to be together with the person they're really meant for. I know I am imperfect, but I will humble myself before you because I cannot imagine my life without you. So what makes Bridgerton Season 2's Enemies to Lovers set up work? And is there anything we can take out of this romantic arc to apply to our own relationships? Here's our take. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe and hit the bell to be notified about all of our new videos. Enemies to Lovers trope is an ancient story arc which sees two main characters move between a heady combination of hatred and desire. There is a kind of merry war betwixt Signor Benedict and her. They never meet, but there's a skirmish of wit between them. One or both halves of the partnership is often proud and self-protective. They might have a wall up or a hidden worry. They often bring a certain skepticism to the idea of finding a perfect match for themselves. Love is the last thing I desire often due to some events in their upbringing or backstory, or due to a sense that they don't quite fit their culture's assumptions about courtship and marriage. It's in part due to this baggage they bring toward love that they might take an instant dislike to each other, seizing on small irritation and digging in their heels with a bias against this person who subconsciously awakens their desire for love. You must tell her how you feel. About my dislike for the Viscount. About whatever it is you feel. Something in this other person who reflects themselves back at them pushes them to be honest and allow love into their lives. You must be honest with yourself. Because one way or another, these kind of feelings always have a way of coming to the surface. But at first, this feels like a terrible challenge, which is why their feelings of love manifest as hatred. In a guide to crafting the trope, writer Kate Joy says that, for the characters to come together, it's important for them to give up their pride but not their values. Joy also states that forgiveness is the main theme of enemies to lovers stories, and that in order for the trope to have a great payoff, the relationship needs to improve them both. We see all of these factors in Antony and Kate's love story. The first real obstacle to their match is that neither one is looking for love. Kate isn't a member of 
of high society by birth, and her family's security rests on her sister Edwina's match, so she pours all her attention into Edwina's future. I'm not here to find a husband for myself, only for my sister. She also seems a little disgusted at the whole marriage mark culture, and seems to prefer becoming an old maid to the idea of being married off to some man who expects to breed her. Simply pick the least objectionable and get her wed, bed, and bread. Antony, meanwhile, is deeply afraid of falling in love, as he's witnessed firsthand how painful it can be to lose love when his father died and his mother descended into grief. I can never be the cause of such pain. So he goes about the process of marrying purely as a business endeavor. The season begins with him listing a series of attributes he wants from a wife, a woman he is determined to be indifferent to. Tolerable, dutiful, suitable enough hips for childbearing and at least half a breath. And that last part is, is not so much a requirement. There is a satisfaction in us feeling ahead of the character here, because we can see clearly he does need a woman whose mind he respects. Lady Delilah can barely string a sentence together for nerves, and Miss Goodrum thought that Napoleon fights for the Spanish. Likewise, his mother knows well that Antony does want love most of all. Your father took his role as Viscount seriously, but he also loved deeply. I know that is what you want, too. And his sister Daphne knows he needs someone who's more like him. I've always imagined Antony to be with someone more like him. <laughs> Sharp, quick, a little too exacting. Soon after Kate and Antony meet, there's an instant ideology clash. Antony is speaking misogynistically about prospective brides and Kate overhears. If my children are to be of good stock, then their mother must be of impeccable quality. And yet the debutantes of London for sure at every turn. Antony's a male member of the gentry and the head of his important household, so no one ever really questions him, especially outside of his own family. Because Kate has nothing to lose, not caring to find a husband or minding her status among London's eligible bachelors, she's free to call him out. I take issue with any man who views women merely as chattels. This is the audience's first glimpse of the fact that Kate has the power to change Antony for the better. Antony especially needs this because he rose to the position of Viscount as a young kid who was ready when his father suddenly passed. So he's in a state of arrested development, like a kid who's play-acting being perfectly responsible. After your father died, a wall went up inside you, as if love had become some, some weakness instead of your greatest strength. And he needs someone to help him resume his growth. I've never wished to succumb to the blind delight of being in love. I cannot so indulge myself. You can choose to be happy. Meanwhile, Kate's sister, seemingly sweet and innocent Edwina, is, on paper, exactly the kind of girl that Antony was describing. She has noble blood, she's extremely accomplished, and super beautiful. Plus, she's the queen's diamond of the season, like his sister Daphne was. But while Edwina rather naively exaggerates the good in everyone... I should like to be with someone kind. Someone like your brother. He's so even-tempered. Antony even-tempered. What Antony needs in a woman is someone who can challenge him like Kate does. Moreover, even if Edwina thinks she loves Antony, if we look closer, her interest in him is really a business match as well. She tells her sister that part of the appeal is the life the Viscount offers her. His family, this home, the life he offers me. He is the one I want, Kate. And she seems driven to win the proposal from Antony, since this would be the ultimate prize, proving the season's diamond had succeeded at the marriage mark game. Suitors who will only suspect that there is something lacking in me when they discover the Viscount is no longer interested. Even when she accepts his proposal, the first thing she says is she'll be his Viscountess. I shall be your Viscountess. And she fixates on the status markers of their wedding. Did I tell you we will be married by the Archbishop himself? 
It makes sense that Edwina is approaching courtship as a professional enterprise since she's been trained to do so for her entire life. But it reinforces that, for Antony, she represents the easier but less fulfilling path of a practical, loveless marriage. There'll be stretches of time where I'll be apart from my children and my wife too. I do look forward to supporting my husband in whatever his endeavors may be. In season one, Antony also has a clear Madonna whore complex, where he clearly feels that there's a binary between women he truly respects and those he truly desires. Every woman is not a lady. Of course not, my lord. Kate is a revelation to him because she inspires both his admiration and his lust, an important integration for his ability to love, but one that's at first very confusing to him. Likewise, what Kate requires is someone who can unlock the feelings of love in her that she has denied herself, and that love must be deep and urgent in nature because, like Antony, she's single-minded, set in her ways, and unwilling to compromise who she is. Unless you would like to quit here and now. Absolutely not. Like Antony, she needs to be humbled in the face of her own emotions, to be willing to admit to herself above all what she's feeling. Be honest with your sister, with yourself. But just as Kate reaches this point, Might I speak with you? Of course. That was meant for Miss Edwina. A major external obstacle appears as Antony proposes to Edwina. As his feelings grow, so does his attempt to resist them. He doubles down on his commitment to the idea of not marrying for love, and he is pretty indifferent to Edwina. And what is it that you believe we share? Our places, our roles. They align. I as the Viscount, you as the Diamond. Season 1 also centered on Daphne and the Duke illustrating the enemies to lovers trope, and they too demonstrated how love between this kind of couple is about challenging each other to grow. Every time I think my marriage has become simple, Simon and I find some new foible that one of us needs the other to tease out and inspect. Yet, season two is different because Kate is a very different female protagonist. While Daphne is very proper, Kate isn't beholden by many of the rules of London society. Do you have always wanted nothing more than your freedom? It's Antony who's more concerned with the rules. From the moment I saw you riding alone in that park, it was obvious the rules are meaningless oh, to you. You and your rules. Which is what leads him to so get in his own way. Meanwhile, Kate is motivated by the desire to protect her beloved family, a core similarity she shares with Antony. I would have thought you could understand understand my position, seeing as you too have sisters to protect. That is different, it is my duty as their guardian. I am the same for Edwina. So after the engagement, her familial loyalty becomes yet another twisted internal obstacle because Kate's love for her sister is pitted against her undeniable feelings for Antony. Even after Anthony finally realizes he needs to stop the impending wedding, it's Kate urging him to push forward. And for both Anthony and Kate, their fixation on doing their duty toward their loved ones actually leads to them causing harm in accelerating nuptials that should never take place. I mourn for you, brother. All of these decisions that you seem to make and then resent us for. You simply gave me everything you really wanted for yourself, as though my life were not my own. The enemies to lovers trope dates back centuries. Shakespeare explored it with comedies like Much Ado About Nothing and The Taming of the Shrew, but Jane Austen really breathed life into it through her novels in the 1810s. In Austen's era, the Regency period, it wasn't possible to write explicitly about sex, so building tension through hatred was a clever way of being titillating. Austen's most famous work, Pride and Prejudice, is a textbook example of enemies to lovers. The epic love story begins when protagonist Elizabeth Bennet overhears her enemy to lover Mr. Darcy and her. She is tolerable, I suppose. 
which is not handsome enough to tempt me. And what follows is a deliciously slow burn between two deeply proud and flawed characters. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? The mode of your declaration merely spared me the concern I might have felt in refusing you, had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. Witty, sharp, and superior Kate and Antony take after Darcy and Lizzie in many ways. Like Lizzie, Kate is intellectual and implicitly critical of her society's low expectations for women, a reason she so gets on with Eloise, who's another Lizzie Bennet type. Since Kate's and Lizzie's society don't place premium value on wit or independence in women, they're not viewed as the most desirable matches. She will already be regarded as an old maid at the mature age of six and twenty. But they don't particularly care if they end up old maids. Also like Lizzie, Kate likes being active outside and doesn't mind getting her dresses dirty. And she feels great protectiveness for a sister who's unlike her, far sweeter, kinder, and viewed by others as more traditionally beautiful, but who, therefore, carries the pressure of marrying well for the family. One of us at least will have to marry very well. And since you are quite five times as pretty as the rest of us and have the sweetest disposition, I fear the task will fall on you. Meanwhile, like Darcy, Antony is closed off to love due to a past family trauma. And he doesn't really believe that any woman will be amazing enough to reawaken real feelings in him. Bridgerton cleverly employs stylistic aspects of Austen's canon, occasionally almost directly borrowing lines or visuals from her books or their adaptations. It is maddening how much you consume my very being. You have bewitched me, body and soul. This tactic adds the richness of recognition to the story. I am a gentleman, and you are a lady. He is a gentleman, I am a gentleman's daughter. Writer Ella Gomez says, The contrast between ardent displays of adoration and disgust within the Regency era's stiff social rules of etiquette and formality has enraptured people for centuries. It is a very powerful thing to meet someone and feel that you know them in a way unlike any other. Bridgerton, with its diverse cast and contemporary silhouettes and music, goes a step further toward inserting us and our sensibilities into that time period. But there's also additional tension added by the rigid social mores of the time. Budding couples were only able to meet each other at balls or in society, so they might only see someone once or twice in a few months, and only then be able to talk while they're dancing. If two people ended up alone together, even perfectly innocently, it could spell disaster for their reputations. What do you think in a room with my unchaperoned daughter. I, I, I found prudence in here. Uh, neither of us Don't blame her. Even the tiniest look between characters is so laden with symbolism that these connections, which might seem like nothing at all nowadays, become charged with sexual chemistry. Kate and Antony's tension is built on this. They barely even touch each other, but tiny incremental interactions, such as eye contact, heavy breathing, or the brush of a hand, builds up to create explosive scenes. Think of what actually happens in the scenes that physically move their relationship forward. She's stung by a bee, he helps her correct the way she's holding her gun, he hands her back a book during a thunderstorm, they pick up a bracelet. And because we're no longer living in Austin's era, the audience can still get these moments full payoff of sex, which is what makes Antony and Kate's sex scene so hotly anticipated. Do you even know all the ways a lady can be seduced? Things I could teach you. The slow burn romance of Bridgerton season two was initially criticized and questioned in the press when it emerged that there wasn't as much sex as there was in the show's first season. Yet clearly the show made a conscious choice to tone down the overt sex and replace it with more suggestion, because this restraint is actually a key element of what's so sexy about Regency love stories. Arguably the sex scenes were better in season two, because the tension was built so slowly, becoming almost unbearably intense as the audience went on a journey with the characters. Contending with these thoughts of wanting to be Nowhere except with you, of acting on the most impure, forbidden desires. 
then the sex scene we do get in episode 7 of season 2 is actually more raunchy contextually than any of Daphne's sex scenes, because Kate and Antony aren't yet married. When considered in this light, the Viscount and his future wife having sex for the first time is risky. It could cement her ruin, and so reinforces how urgently they desire each other. One of the things that's so interesting about Bridgerton is the way that it answers a common misconception, that the opposite of love is hate. You told me you hated him. That only meant your feelings were strong. As the show articulates, actually, the opposite of love is indifference. Antony doesn't love Edwina, and he doesn't hate her either. You love me. I understand you. I sympathize with you. Meanwhile, what's so attractive to him about Kate is her competitiveness and her combative nature, that she can spar with him and that she's so passionate when she does. From the very first moment he meets her, there's an extreme depth of feeling present. I've loved you from the moment we raced each other in that park. Kate Joy highlights the fact that when creating the enemies to lovers trope, some writers confuse abuse with rivalry. It can be a difficult line to walk. It's important that the passion never tips into anything physically or psychologically harmful, but a little conflict can actually make a partnership stronger. Dr. Elizabeth Dorns Hall, the director of Family Communication and Relationships Lab, says that conflict is a vital aspect of any close relationship. Dorns Hall says conflict provides an opportunity for making change. If both partners are up for it, it gives you a chance to work on the problems in your relationship. You do know there'll never be a day where you do not vex me. Is that a promise, Kathanisham? Conflict also encourages us to seek a healthier way of communicating, which is what happens with Kate and Antony. Part of what is so rewarding about this season is when the characters open up and are truly honest with one another. Night and day, I dream of you. Becoming vulnerable with one another. Are you going to ask me to dance? One last time. Are you going to say yes? Their love also makes them vulnerable in front of others. Do you want to stop? Just keep looking at me. Which is not something that either are shown to have done before. That's an element of ourselves that conflict draws out too. Our deepest vulnerabilities and anxieties laid bare for our partners to see. How did he die? He was stung by a bee. Ultimately, once they're together with the obstacles to their love removed, Kate and Antony don't experience very much conflict. But they keep that passionate sparring spark alive by being competitive with one another, which is a great way of creating safe tension in the relationship. I just want to take this opportunity to return upstairs. And admit defeat? Never. As we saw from their very first meeting, when they raced their horses, these two aren't happy unless they're being challenged. I shall never surrender to you on the sporting field. Which makes them the perfect match, always pushing each other to improve. The forgiveness mentioned by Kate Joy is present throughout the season, but it's not just forgiveness between the two lovers, but also for their families. Both Kate and Antony have experienced similar trauma in the deaths of their fathers, and both of their mothers have suffered greatly as a result of losing their true loves. Part of the arc of Kate and Antony falling in love involves them forgiving their mothers for what felt like abandonment when they were grieving their husbands. My husband died. It should have been me taking on my family's burden, not Kate. She sacrificed far too much for us. Now that both of them have experienced the deep resonance of true love, they can understand their mother's actions a little better. Losing Edmund was the most difficult time of my life. I would still choose the life I led with him each and every time because real True love is worth it. There's also the forgiveness that Edwina gives to the pair in the end. I think they look beautiful together. Which has forced her to grow as a person, as she never experienced real hardship prior to this point, and she's rewarded for it by the Queen with an even bigger courtship prize. Have I yet told you about my nephew? He is a prince. 
and he is available. So love has helped Kate and Antony improve and soften as people in ways that are beneficial to their loved ones. As Lysander says in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the course of true love never did run smooth, and never is that truer than in enemies to lovers narratives. In the process, the trope teaches us some really important things, like how confusing strong feelings can be, and how fear of loss so often accompanies love. I was fearful of losing you. It is why I could not visit you after your accident. And it teaches us to gravitate towards people who make us feel something, even if we're not sure exactly what those feelings are. If we're enjoying someone's company when we're arguing with them, just imagine how great the connection could be when we stop. It seems the two of us are finally seeing eye to eye on something. This is The Take on your favorite movie shows and culture. Subscribe so you can watch all of our videos.